The University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And good morning and welcome to this February 16th edition of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News, where you're being joined in studio today by State Horticulture Specialist Bob Westerfield, working off the UGA Griffin Campus. We're going to talk a little gardening today. Bob, you know, we, we the last time you were here, we had just gone through the aftermath of the storms. They had been about a week removed. You know, now that you've kind of been through Griffin and you saw the damage on campus, what going forward are the most immediate needs to get all the research projects in your field back up and running yeah so um yeah it definitely was a a, a smack that we got with that tornado and I, I just driving here to the uh radio station i saw tons of tons of wood laying on the road you know it's not be plenty of firewood for this year and next year it looks like for the, the folks of griffin but um you know we weren't hit too bad as far as my stuff goes we have a lot of research facilities that were hit um some of the greenhouse facilities we have particularly out there off of 16 uh were demolished so they're going to be in the process of rebuilding them um, we had some damage to a couple of our buildings on campus but as far as we're going, um, my, I am hot and heavy right now. We're ordering garden seed. Uh, we're trying to get our supplies ready. We actually started planting with my assistant, Mackenzie English, uh, in the greenhouse the other day. So we're getting some you know, spring vegetables be started in the greenhouse, and, and we're gearing up and ready to go full steam ahead, uh, tornado or not. But again, you know, I know a lot of folks are still suffering from that, and we do feel for them. But as far as my research and some of the stuff I've got, uh, we're, we're full steam ahead. Now, how will, and, and you've had a month to think about this one, the, the storms were a little, what, four days and a month ago. Will there be any lasting damage to gardening? Was the soil affected in any way, or is that, uh, you know, is the earth pretty you know, stable when it comes to natural disasters and will, will hold its shape and its, its content? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think in, in, in terms of any of the, the, the gardens, be it landscape or, or uh, vegetable gardens, being affected, um, the most I have seen from that standpoint probably has been um, erosion. You know, some of these places that are slightly sloped with all the rain we had and so forth, it has driven off a lot of the topsoil, if we had any, and, and amendments, and so that will need to be looked at, trying to get that you know, fixed back up, adding some organic maybe back to the soil. Certainly trees are affected. A lot of trees, you know, have fallen down, but those that have not fallen down, there's a lot of work to be done with ornamental trees, even, you know, medium-sized shrubs and, and large trees, removing some of those dead branches. They're, they're never going to come back, so it's best to go ahead and take those safely out now. Um, also, you know, some folks that were previously in a shaded yard, uh, be it for, you know, no, no ability to grow vegetables or they had a lot of shade-dwelling Ornamental plants may suddenly 
find themselves ha- now having to get some sun-loving plants because the exposure, and I've seen this happen a couple of tornadoes ago, several years ago, where someone's house completely changed from being almost totally shaded to full sun. And then the plants that they had previously just would not make it in that sun environment. So, you know, if you're in the unfortunate situation where you lost lots of canopy and trees and shade, um, you know, you're going to have to rethink your landscape. Well, I, I, that was something I have not considered. So that's, that takes us in an interesting new direction that we had not counted on. Let's say that you are one of those victims who suffered enough storm damage that your canopy is, is pretty much eradicated, and now you're dealing with total sunlight. Are there some plants or vegetables, if we choose to go that route, that will instantaneously find success because of the sunlight and where the soil will be the same for more you know shaded-type plants? Are there things that will automatically go into that spot that can be effective and grow well? Yeah, as long as the soil is manipulated correctly, and I start with that, be it ornamentals or vegetables, you know, that you're tilling it up, you're adding good organic, a lot of things can certainly thrive in a full sun environment. In fact, um, those that may have had strong shade canopy were probably having a terrific difficult time trying to grow vegetables because they essentially love full sun at least six hours of sunlight or more so it may be a silver lining is for those that were unable to grow vegetables because of all the shade from the trees they may now actually have a pretty good site for a vegetable garden on the other side of it if they had shade loving plants and name name a few something like dogwoods azaleas um vinca um in some cases, you know, folks will have um, something called Linton Rose, Helleborus. Those are all shade-loving plants. They're not going to thrive in that hot summer sun, so now we're going to have to redo that landscape. Um, right now is a good time to plant. Anytime between now and, and before we really start to warm up. So some of the hollies that are out there, some of the... Um, you know, the junipers will take full sun very easily. As long as they're planted properly, any container-grown plant should take right off. Um, I would grow. I would try to purchase some of the smaller-sized plants. They're easier to establish, and when I mean that, uh, I'd buy one-gallon plants if I can find them versus big four- and five-gallon plants. They're going to be smaller to start with, but they're going to um, acclimate and, and begin to grow easier than those larger plants. So, you know, I would go to some of the local nurseries, Um, Do a little research, visit the extension offices we've got, or go online. We've got great publications on how to select plants, how to lay out a landscape. And you probably could completely redo it. And I would say for the most part, as long as you keep some of that water going to it that we might need to establish them, you should do fine. Well, the city of Griffin is holding an initiative this Friday in conjunction with its environmental council where they're going to be giving away tree planters for people to replace some of the trees that were torn down by the storms as a beautification and restoration effort. What types of trees would would work best right now, given the condition? What is a tree planter? Well, you know, they come in the planters. Oh, okay. So they got to be trees. Right. Okay, I got you. Okay. I don't know. You know, if you got some strong guy that comes with this, he's the tree planter. (laughs) Yeah, don't I wish. I want about 10 of those. Um, Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, I would say if if you came to the scenario where, hey, gosh, you know, I had all these heavy oak trees and pecan trees. Now they're gone. I'm in, in a full sun scenario. The trees you would want to avoid would be like the dogwoods we mentioned, possibly red buds. And I don't know what they're giving away tree-wise, so that would help to know that. Those are shade-dwelling um, trees. They like to be having their understory trees. They like to have a canopy. But depending on what they're giving away, any of the oak species would do fine in full sun. Um, would, would prefer it maple if they're giving it away. Any of the maple species from the indigenous red maple to all the sunset and, and hybrids out there with a brilliant color would do great. Um, you don't have to know what trees they are. No, they, they, okay. that was not mentioned. That's right. But um, uh, did you know, and, and I didn't, and I've lived here most of my adult life, um, did you know Griffin had so many trees? I mean, there there have more that have uh, just seemingly looking at the cleanup efforts. There have been as many that fell as I thought was in the entire county. Yeah, um, particularly, you know, if you go down some of the older portions like um, like 6th Street and all the way down those kind of places, um, there's just so many magnificent trees out there that they're irreplaceable. I mean, not in our lifetime anyway. You're never going to get that size and canopy. You know, some of those trees are over 100 years old. And I knew there were a lot of big trees in Griffin, but, I mean, it's, it, it really doesn't almost um, come to fruition until you see them damaged and on the ground. And it's just been colossal. At the at the 
campus itself. Um, fortunately, kind of more towards uh, 341, 1941, whatever you call it, closer to the highway, we lost a ton of big trees, which are not right by the buildings, fortunately. But, I mean, those were massive oaks that fell over, and those had to be 100, 150-year-old trees or more. And it's just amazing to see those gone now. It's it's totally opened everything up, kind of. And the one that crashed through the wrought iron fence not too far from the Stuckey Auditorium, that tree had to be 150. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a shame to lose that. And, and the funny thing is, you're thinking, well, how does it blow over such a strong tree? And if you really kind of understood the, how trees grow, particularly in Georgia, um, it's not as stable as you think. A tree basically is just balancing itself above the ground. It does have this large root system. Those root systems go out and extend out. They don't go down. So there's no, you know, giant carrot or tap root on these trees. Right. There's are, no anchor, so to no speak. There's no anchor. Um, it's basically sort of a pancake root system. If you've ever seen a tree blow over, that's what you see, a big pancake. And yet, it does hold the tree to some extent, but you get enough wind and so forth, as we have seen, um, it, it'll topple that thing over. So a tree is basically kind of a pendulum balancing itself, and if it gets enough input, it'll go over. And so those roots that are at the very shallow rooted within the top 12 inches, it doesn't take a whole lot to rip them out of there. Well, now we'll get into the vegetable gardening. And one thing that you have impressed upon me over your many appearances on the UGA Griffin Campus News is it doesn't matter how good or bad of a gardener you may be, you're not going to get any results or at least not the desired results if your soil is not right. So could we start by describing the soil conditions that we find here in the immediate region and how they differ from some other sections of the state? Right. So we are a kind of a dynamic and, and, and certainly a different state when it comes to soils all across the state um, from the upper portion of the uh, the Piedmont area which is where we are up to the North Georgia mountains um, typically you're going to see heavier clay soils uh, there is some sand there is some organic but we got a lot of heavy clay which are tiny particles that hold together very tightly now they're not the end of the world they're very rich in minerals and so forth but as you may have noticed if you've ever dug a hole around these parts um, they're difficult to dig in because they're very compact uh, as you start going further south from about Macon down um, we start hitting some of the um, the coastal soils more of a sandy base much easier to dig in um, certainly more, more pleasant to work with but now they are lacking the clay which means they're going to be in more need of water because they're going to drain faster so there's some downsides to that ideally what we would like to see is a combination of several things in soil which we can manipulate by the addition of certain things uh, primarily organic matter and by doing that um, we're adding in organic whether it be some kind of composted manures or things like that we're going to take that heavy clay soil and begin to increase the porosity the the particle size if you will so that water fertilizer can now infiltrate better the roots in that plant can now expand out in an easier environment because it's not as compacting as that clay so we need to alter particularly when it comes to vegetable garden vegetables are very fast season growth it's not like it's going to be a tree there for 150 years you're talking about something's going to be in the ground for one to maybe three or four months and it's over with so having the best loose organic amended soil we can will pay big dividends for success on vegetables well you make mention of our area's red clay soil does that make it more difficult at times for say ornamental plants which you you know kind of automatically consider because of their beauty somewhat to be somewhat more delicate do they have a hard time thriving or a harder time than maybe in some other areas trying to penetrate the red clay soil when it's time to spread its roots some plants or some ornamentals certainly um, will have more trouble than others those that are fairly native to this area um, will we'll certainly have the best chance of making it in this native soil because, you know, no one's amending their soil. The absolute worst thing that I see people do, in all honesty, in this clay soil is they'll purchase a new plant, be it an azalea, maybe a rose bush, or you name it. Um, they'll go out to the yard, they'll dig a hole, normally not big enough, but just about the size of the root ball, uh, heavy clay soil normally, and they'll just take that nice, potted, full of organic matter plant and drop it right in the hole. And usually a year or so goes by and they see that it hasn't grown, it's turned yellow, and they'll call the county agent or myself and say, what's going on with this? And what happens is you've got that really organic root ball that's going to now attract a lot of that water that's going to come in off that clay, and it's going to normally drown the plant. So it's going to go nitrogen deficient 
uh, basically defunct from not having an active root system from being too wet. Uh, so you never want to take a plant and just stick it in a small clay soil hole, nor do you want to add soil amendments into the planting hole. What you want to do is till the area, or if you've got a shovel, break it up the entire area, way larger than the root ball, and add in organic matter into the native soil, not in the planting hole, but make a uh, basically a mixture of the native clay and soil so it's, it's very, um, you know, when you've got that base laying out, you've got three or four inches of amended soil, then plant into that a large planting hole, drop the plant in, and you'll be much better on survival. When you say much larger than the root ball, how much larger? Maybe twice the size of the, the root ball? The rule of thumb is two times the size and of the And you want to put it dead in the middle and then recover right. the... And only plant it, in most cases, that no deeper than just the top of that root ball itself. So that the top of the container, you want that to be level with the existing ground. Some people say, well, plant it up higher because, you know, you'll get better drainage. Or plant it down lower so you get more water but that's going to run into problems either direction so always plant it level to where if you took a shovel handle and laid it across it would come right across the top of that root ball from the existing soil now how do we know if our if our soil is going to be you know a, a benefit or a detriment to our growing i mean how do we find that information out yeah so um you know you can do some self-analysis by walking just with a shovel or, or, or a, a small pick and, and then just poking in the ground saying, hey, how, how hard is it to penetrate this? Dig some of the soil up, you know, in the area that you're wanting to plant. I would say in most cases, if it's never been planted or amended, it's probably going to be fairly heavy in clay and will need some good amendments. And when I say amendments in general, if you've never added anything to your planting beds, whether it be vegetables or ornamentals, uh, I would recommend at least four inches of good organic tilled or worked into the native soil if you're just going to put a little dusting you know you get one little 50 pound bag of black cow whatever um you know and then you're spreading it out on a big bed and it looks like it just dusted it um, that's going to do nothing so you want to get inches and inches so i'm going to say four inches of stuff good stuff and stuff being organic matter tilled into the native soil you will have a tremendous benefit to your plants okay so what about soil testing? Is this the time of year to do that, or does it change at all between now and springtime? Or, you know, is, is this the ideal time to visit your county extension agent if you want to get your soil tested to see maybe if the problem is your ground and not you as a gardener? Absolutely. Um, you know, we always say to do it in the fall, but year-round is fine for soil testing. If you haven't done it yet, um, I, would, I would do it very soon. Um, you can either bring in a soil sample or you can run by the county extension office. Some of them will actually loan you out a soil probe, which goes down and pulls soil from about maybe four or five inches deep, or you can use a small hand shovel. Uh, ideally, taking a soil sample, you want to, let's just say you were going to test for your front yard for ornamentals and turf. Um, you would maybe take 10 random samples scattered, maybe zigzag around different parts of the yard, get that soil about four inches deep, mix all of it together in a, in a pail or a bucket, and then the extension office will need about a cup of that soil. Maybe half a cup would be fine, but bring a cup full if you got it. So it's going to be sort of a, a cross-section of your yard. Once you get in the office there with the agent, they'll ask you, okay, what do you want to test for? So you might say, well, I want to know about vegetables, turf, and ornamentals. You can test for all three things. They'll just run that as a different code. So you could test for vegetables on that same soil sample, turf, ornamentals, or whatever you might desire. And that will give you a good recipe for where your pH is. We've mentioned that many times before, but that's the alkalinity or acidity of soil. And it'll tell you what to do to adjust that, plus what your nutritional level is and how to adjust it. Well, I would love to be able to blame the soil for my gardening problems, but that's probably not the case. But if there is an issue, what do we do? How do we correct it? Or is there a way? I mean, I know you can add certain nutrients. You can add nitrogen. You can add lime. There are certain ways to make it more acidic or more basic. Sure. But So what do you do? Yeah, so depending on what, maybe if you took the soil sample, um, if you have never limed it in many years, Typically, soils around here are going to run on the acidic side, maybe in the five-point range. Um, you know, pH is going to, uh, ideal pH for most things, vegetables, ornamentals, is going to be somewhere in the mid-sixes, like 6.5, 6.8, somewhere in that range. And okay. the pH level for water is 
seven even. Right, which is neutral. Okay, anything above that is alkaline. So we want, in most cases, and there are some exceptions, but in most cases we want slightly acidic soil. If we happen to, um, you know, see that, hey, you know, our, our, our soil is too acidic, it's down around 5.0, then in order to counteract that, that's where we would use something called dolomitic limestone, or some people just call it lime or agriculture lime. Um, that is magnesium and calcium, and that together will raise that pH up. It doesn't happen overnight. It could take two or three months for that to adjust the pH. But now would be a good time to be doing that in preparation of any ornamentals you're planting or, or vegetables. As far as the nutritional um, standpoint, the soil test will tell you what your current phosphorus level is, what your current uh, potassium level is, along with usually calcium, magnesium, and a couple other nutrients. We don't tell you your nitrogen level because that is dynamic, meaning that it's changing every single day. Nitrogen is a very unstable element. Um, it gets utilized very quickly within the first few weeks when it's put out for a plant. Other things are eating it. The microorganisms in the ground are chewing on the nitrogen. It's being volatilized into the atmosphere. So we will tell you how much nitrogen we think you should put out, but we don't normally give you a nitrogen current level because it would be different by the time we test it and the time you get your results back. Are there any telltale signs in the growing process that would let you know that the pH level of your soil isn't quite as, as level as it might could stand to be? Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, some of what I'll tell you could mimic other problems. But typically, if you see a yellowing of the plants, uh, first thing most people say, well, that's nitrogen deficient. Well, it might be nitrogen deficient because of a couple of different reasons, and one could be the pH is off. If the pH is so out of whack, again, we're talking about the alkalinity or the acidity, a plant will not be able to appropriately absorb the nitrogen and other elements it needs. So the plant actually goes nitrogen deficient because of the soil being, the pH being poor. So that's one thing. Um, you know, other things we could see right now, you might walk around and see some purpling in your plants, in your lawn, particularly centipede grass. Maybe you've got some other ornamentals that are showing a little purple color. That's phosphorus deficiency. Um, sometimes it's caused because of lack of phosphorus. Many times at this time of the year, it's caused because of the cold. The cold will limit the plant's ability to pull up phosphorus. So yeah, there are some telltale signs that can be related very much to the soil. Um, again, yellowing and dying back can mean the soil staying too wet. Uh, the roots are not functioning, and so you're getting root rot. So when I'm out diagnosing vegetables, ornamentals, whatever, I look for a lot of things, um, and then I start saying, okay, I've seen this symptom before. What does it look like? And then it's one thing to figure out what the deficiency is. Then the next thing is figure out why does it have that deficiency? Is it just lacking that nutrient, or is it lacking it because of some environmental factor possibly you know too much rain not enough or maybe someone has done something else so it it, it, it takes time to to understand that the soil sample will help you get everything kind of close to being perfect as you can but there are certainly other things that can kind of mess with it well i mean you know we always talk about adding lime and things like that but in, in past episodes you've talked about they there's some certain nutrients that are sold in bags and they're collective there are several nutrients contained in one bag and it will help with some of those deficiencies. Right. What types of, uh, on, the in, on the ingredient label, what should people be looking for? Yes, particularly on, when it comes to vegetables, but it certainly wouldn't hurt for ornamentals or lawn. Um, I like to, at least the first time of the year, use a premium fertilizer, a premium fertilizer that contains micronutrients. Now, people usually know the, th the big three on the bag, the N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. So if you see 10, 10, 10, that's basically designating nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But plants use a good bit of those elements, but they also use a lot of micronutrients. They just use a little tiny bit of the micronutrients, but they're just as important. Things like molybdenum, calcium, magnesium, iron, even chloride, and things like such are vital for a plant to grow. And if it doesn't have it, it, it can show deficiency or decline. So if you can purchase, and they do sell it, um, find a fertilizer that contains micronutrients, you can assure that when you're putting that in the ground, at least those micronutrients will be available to the plant. So I would look at the nurseries if you order online. Um, you know, that's what I normally will fertilize my vegetables with.
Well, this is question's going to be coming on left field, out of left field, but if I don't ask it now, I will forget. So we'll, we'll throw so this in there now. When have you ever given me something out of left field? Really? Well, uh, <laughs> you you are, you know, by by advocation, sort of, you're a hunter. You, you do like to yes, hunt. Sir. Do you have occasion to use your knowledge of plants to help you in that endeavor? I mean, you know, there are plenty of wives' tales, such as moss only grows facing water and things like that. Do you... When you're out hunting, do you use your knowledge of plants and wildlife to uh, be able to figure out where maybe some of the ideal spots to await your prey come from? I have never had that question, but I love that question because, you know, I do enjoy my outdoors. And the answer would be 100% yes. Um, It depends on what I'm hunting. If I'm hunting, you know, deer, um, my knowledge of plants and trees helps tremendously. And most decent hunters or hunters been doing that a while start to learn a lot about what what are deer attracted to what are the native foods uh, number one thing by far any hunter would say is you want to find a white oak tree now why not a red oak why not a post oak they'll eat those too but white oak it, it, that's the ice cream that's the candy coming down when it falls so if you know how to identify a white oak and it's bearing acorns you want to be near that tree um, and there's th- all things along those lines as you're, you know, you're looking for, um, f- different species, doves, you know, if you don't have it planted already, like millet and sunflowers, you're looking for a lot of seed bearing type, um, grass type things that might attract them once it's mowed. So yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and certainly all the time I'm out there, plus knowing kind of what to avoid, um, things like, uh, trying to give it, well. Obviously, stuff like poison ivy. If people get that confused all the time with other plants, I know exactly what it looks like. Uh, I'm going to avoid that. Or if you happen to see something called trifoliate. Trifoliate's a funny name. Some people call it mock orange, but when I see it, I, I take about a 10-foot berth around it. It's it's the plant. It's not a native, but it's, it's a... It, obnoxious invasive that's got thorns on it about four inches long it puts out little orange fruit so it looks like little baby oranges it's down usually in wet areas of swamps we've got it all over our hunting club but uh it will mm-hmm. pop a hole in you if you happen to walk into it so i'm sure you're popular at the hunting club when you impart this this plant <laughs> knowledge and, and let them hunters incorporate that into their repertoire well, it's true, and again, a lot of guys have been around a long time, know what to look for. Um, you know, they know what, what things are going to be feeding on, and I just mentioned white oaks, but there's other things as well. Certainly, uh, you know, when the, when the dogwoods are dropping the berries, uh, things are going to eat that. The wild hogs love hickory nuts. Uh, you know, it's amazing to watch, if you've ever seen it before, probably not, but uh, watching wild hogs eat a hickory nut. I mean, you and I can barely crack them open with a sledgehammer, and those guys are crunching them up like M&Ms, like there's nothing to it. Um, and it's like, it just gives you kind of, you know, you don't want to ever get your arm inside a hog's mouth because he could absolutely take you apart. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. I do sometimes, you know, help the guys with ID on stuff. They'll bring something in. Hey, what is this plant? And they're like, okay, that's what this is. Um, so yeah, I, I use it all the time. I guess I had never, never thought about that, but, um, you know, just being able to identify some things out in the woods, um, can be very helpful. Okay, now our temperatures have been kind of messy here lately. We've had, you know, a day, week-long stretches of unseasonably warm weather. Then it turns cold again. How do planters, particularly for the vegetable gardens, it's still too early for the ornamentals, but for those who favor the vegetable gardening, how do they resist the temptation to try to put something in the ground right now? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the plant companies like Bonnie's and so forth are hoping you do put it in the ground right now so that it perishes and you buy it again. But we always preach at all the programs I'm doing to to pay not as much mind to the air temperature as to the soil temperature. And I know you're going to look it up, so I'll I'll go ahead and say it now. Um, We have a really good UGA website that will give you the soil temperatures in your location. If you just Googled UGA weather site uh, it would probably be the first thing that you get but at the end of the day it'll show a map of the state and you click on the closest location which i guarantee we got some here in griffin but there's all around the state we've got sites and then when that pops up you'll hit current conditions and that'll show you down the line of a lot of information the soil temperature what are we looking for well i don't want to plant spring vegetables traditional spring vegetables like corn tomatoes peppers eggplant squash i want to wait for soil temperatures to get at least 65 degrees 
air temperature could be 80 degrees. We could have a day where the air temperature is 30 degrees, but the soil temperature will move very slowly. And then over time, and it could be, gosh, first part of April, could be the end of April, before soil temperatures consistently hit 65 degrees. Now, I know you're about to tell me, but I'm going to guess our soil temperature probably somewhere maybe in the low 50s or something. Exactly. You are exactly correct. It is right now at the 2-inch level, 51.15 degrees, 51.27 at 4 inches, and 51.61 at 8 inches. And that's about a four-degree increase over this time last year. That's right, and that's good information. That's that's a cool site. You can go look up weather that happened 20 years ago on this site. You can. It's it's www.weather.uga.edu, and to find soil temperature, there is a heading across the top called Calculator, and soil temperatures is the first option under that heading. We use this all the time, this information, depending on where we are in the state, and it really varies. Um, we could go down to somewhere like Adipogus, which is about the most south UGA site that we have. It's down there. I, don't, I think it's Decatur or Seminole County. It actually was there a few weeks ago. Um, and their soil temperature could be 10 degrees warmer. Perfect example. I just went to Waycross because it okay. was the first southern city <laughs> that I saw. So I saw Waycross. Wifey's home. 51 degrees here. Okay. Almost 60 there, 59.69 there at 2 inches. That That's a big disparity. It's a big difference. And we talk about, you know, hitting that magic 65-degree mark or maybe a little bit more. Um, they're sometimes two to three weeks ahead of us in planting their vegetables, their corn. So, you know, when you're writing publications like I do, you, you can't just emphatically say, you know, plant on this date. You have to usually say, depending on the soil temperature in your area, uh, plant this vegetable then, this ornamental then, because it varies depending on North Georgia and South Georgia is a lot of miles. I mean, we're talking about an expanse of, um, I don't know, what is it, three or 400 miles length of the state? I honestly don't know, but it's, it's a long ways. And, and, and that changes climatic zones several times along the way. And the fact is, you know, uh, Ms. Tony said it was like 51 degrees soil temperature here. If today, and I don't think it'll be that high, but let's just say, for example, if today it went up to 85 degrees, we check those soil temperatures tomorrow. You say, man, it was hot. I was sweated. 85 degrees. The soil temperature might jump up to a big 53 degrees. It's if not, that. If that. It's not going to move far. So don't get overly excited by the air temperature, but check the soil temperature. No matter whether Bonnie's has delivered all the plants, which they probably already have, into the Home Depots and the Lowe's and all the garden centers, you want to look at the soil temperature. When you know that soil temperature is warm enough, 65 or more, then you can start to plant things. Well, I know winter vegetables are, are hardier and could have a better chance to survive, but then the conditions of the spring kind of a, eliminate that as a choice, do they not? Yeah, um, you can actually slip in some more winter vegetables if you wanted to, and really you could probably get them in the ground between now and maybe the first week of March, and, and, and you're, you're taking a little bit of a chance. But uh, things like potatoes really like cool season to start with, so you can take russet potatoes we're talking about like the the white and and red potatoes i normally plant those in the first part of march and you're going to plant them down deep and let them sit there it's going to be a while then they'll start to emerge out they're going to go almost all summer long and then when the plants fade down you're digging up the potatoes but you want to start them when it's cool Um, other things like we talked about the winter vegetables yeah you can still get a planting of lettuce broccoli cucurbits perhaps uh cucurbits i would hold off on till we warm up to 65 degrees because they're they're a summer vegetable so any of your squash and cucumbers and stuff are going to want it warmer i've been craving some cucumbers that's why there's nothing like fresh cucumbers out of the garden i'm getting tired of buying them so (laughs) (laughs) and i will have some before it's over so but yeah that that's why i asked about that uh you know, raised beds will be coming in soon, but let's go to the people like you who want to start in the greenhouse. Now, temperatures are still kind of varying wildly. Today, we're going to see a high approaching 70, and by the weekend, we're going to have lows into the upper 20s, but wind chills right around 20 degrees. How does that affect what happens in the greenhouse? Do they stay sufficiently warm without an outside heat source? Well, well the honest answer is, nothing should affect what happens in the greenhouse if it's done right uh if it's done not right um yeah we can certainly have fluctuations that could be dangerous um simplest way to answer is most plants in the greenhouse would like to be at a temperature that you would find fairly reasonable and most of us when you think about it try to keep our houses and and again see people there'll be exceptions out there but you'd like your house to be anywhere from maybe 65 degrees 
to the high of 75 degrees. That's a good greenhouse temperature. You know, we usually keep our greenhouses at, at the Griffin campus somewhere around 70 degrees. Okay, so they get hotter in the summer for sure because all that radiant sun coming in, but we have to cool them. Uh, you want to be able to have controls in a greenhouse to where you can add heat to it if you have to on cold days and certainly cool down when we're having super hot days. So your, your temperature fluctuation really should not move more than about 5 degrees or so in a greenhouse. And that has to be done through proper you know, installation of cooling and heating. Uh, a cold frame, if you will, is kind of a non-heated, non-cooled greenhouse. It's just basically a covered plastic or glass house that will create warmth. But certainly if we get into, like you said, this weekend, the 20s, you better have something supplemental in there, such as a space heater or heating mats that you can actually plug in and you grow on. It looks like a heating pad uh, in order to survive. As far as like summer vegetables, we have not even started ours yet. We're getting our planters ready. Most summer vegetables are going to take between five to seven weeks to be ready from the time you put it in the greenhouse as a seed to the time it's a transplant. So again, we don't know when the soil temperature is going to be warm enough, but we're anticipating somewhere around the second week of April. So we want to count back, and, and that means probably at the first part of March, which we're coming up soon, we'll start to plant our spring vegetables in the greenhouse, if that makes sense, and then we're five or six weeks out. Well, speaking of transplanting, once that time comes, my wife works in the neonatal field, and I see the nurses sometimes at the hospital treat these babies almost as if they are packaged salt, point being that they're not going to damage them. Right. Like when it comes time to giving them a bath or changing them or feeding them or whatever, they, they aren't as delicate as someone else might be. Are there certain, Do you have to treat plants when you're transplanting them in the same fashion? Are they as delicate as some people fear, or are they a little more hardy than some people might expect? The best way to answer that is, um, a, a, as far as you know, handling the plant, you do have to be careful not to rip the root system out when you're pulling them out of the container or whatever you started them in. But I, one th word I will use is you do have to acclimate the plants. And by that, it would be like, again, if you, to use your baby example, but if you took the baby who was in a warm hospital of maybe 73 degrees and stuck them out on a 40-degree day, it'd probably freeze to death, or, or the poor little thing would be freezing. Um, same thing with plants. They have been living in the hospital, if you will, at a warm environment, being nurtured and cuddled by you being the nurse, feeding it water, fertilizer, warmth, and all of a sudden you're going to stick it in the ground the next day. That's not a good scenario. So we acclimate the plants that we grow in our high tunnels, in our greenhouses, in our cold frames. And by acclimation, what I mean is you'll take those containers of plants out, usually they're in a tray, out of your greenhouse, um, for half a day stick them outside. I would do it during the daytime, allow them to adjust to some of those outdoor temperatures, then bring them back in, let them have a nice little peaceful sleep in the greenhouse. Next day, do that again. I would do that for three or four days if you can, and that is acclimating. It's getting them used to and hardening off a little bit, if you will, um, those plants so that when you go to stick them into the ground when it's time to plant, they won't shock. And shock means basically a plant sits there and stunts. Sometimes it dies or it sits there for a while before it ever figures out, hey, what do I do now? Um, by going back and forth from greenhouse to outside and back in again, we're giving them sort of a head start, if you will, to get them ready for the actual planting environment. Well, when it comes time to plant in the greenhouse and not in the garden, so you're, gonna, you're developing a plant for transplanting purposes, mm -hmm. is it advisable to use the same soil that it will be in once it is transplanted, the red clay? Or is it better to use the soil that the, the plant came with and then let it make the adjustment on its own once it's transplanted? So if two things. If we're buying transplants from, say, the store, you know, where it, 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 right. it's going to come with and a then soil I, basis. After you answer this, tell us how you do it. Okay. So if, if you're buying a transplant, and, and I.e. probably from Bonnie's Plant Farm, since they're about the only sellers, um, yeah, it's going to come with a basically soilless mixture, which we'll talk about in a second. It'll look like dark soil, but it's really not soil. And uh, it'll have root system. No, you don't want to try to get that soil off. You're going to plant that hopefully into your amended planting bed, your garden bed, your raised bed, your, your garden soil that has got some organic with it, but clay as well. You want to leave that soil on that root ball, keep it intact as possible so you don't disturb it. When I'm growing my own transplants, you know, I'm starting in a greenhouse, in a container with a seed, 
and the stuff that I use to grow it in is a soilless mixture. Um, I use a germinating mix, okay? You can purchase them sometimes from, you know, the big garden centers, but sometimes you have to order online. But I'm looking for something that's going to contain things such as perlite, vermiculite, peat moss. None of those are actually soils. And they combine those together in, in, a, in a good ratio that it makes a very fluffy, aerated soil for that seed to germinate in. Uh, that way it's disease-free. You don't want to go out and get garden soil and bring it in the house and try to grow it out of that. There's too many diseases and, and issues with being too heavy. It's going to rot the seed. So using a soilless mixture to start your transplants, whether you're growing flowers or vegetables, is the route you want to go. So you want a germinating mix. You don't want potting soil, okay? You don't want something like Nature's Helper that's full of pine bark, um, you want a germinating mix, which will be a very light, airy soil that you're going to wet down, and it's going to be a great seed contact and get plants up and growing. Okay, now let's let's turn our attention to pest control. You know, you you talk all the time about fertilizers, and some are you know pre-emergent, some are post-emergent. Do pesticides work the same way? Are there any pre-emergents for that that would just keep them off your lawn if you put it out now or out of your garden? Not really pre-emergent per se, but we have a lot of the new synthetic man-made chemicals that we utilize for whatever, say out on the grass, for grub control, possibly some, some later uh, insects like uh, spittle bugs and things. Some of the chemicals we have now have got residual to them, which means if you spray them on and provided we don't get a monsoon of rain coming in, they'll continue to be effective in some cases for several weeks to a few months, depending on what they are. Particularly if they're granular in form, they may slowly break down to where they have a provided chemical control for several months. Um, versus, uh, you know, something that's organic will probably be very effective, but only for a very short period of time. But as far as pre and post, uh, we don't normally have that when that it comes to insecticides. Apply, okay. That's right. Okay, well, that, that's interesting, and it's interesting, and I had never really considered that option or the possibility of if you live on an incline or somewhat of a hill, that if you use the granular form and you get a rain, it's just going to wash to the bottom of the hill. You might get real good control on the bottom of the hill, or your neighbor might get it, depending on where you're living. So, Okay, let, let's move into raised beds because this is something that uh, even if you, you might not have the constitution to go out and, and work in the garden daily, raised beds are an attractive option for people who might not can stoop at the, the same rate or for the periods of time that they used to. Is it more beneficial to plants, vegetables, or is, does it just depend on the species? You know, I think raised beds are a great way for folks to start out in vegetable gardening to see if it's something they're going to really like. Um, certainly you can grow ornamentals in there as well. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Raised beds have got the advantage, as you mentioned, you could build them as high as you want to. If you had really bad back issues, you could certainly look up some plans, and they're not hard to build. Uh, build raised beds 36 inches tall to where you basically could wheel up to it if you wanted to or sit in a chair. Or you could build them, you know, a couple of inches tall. Ideally, a raised bed, in my opinion, should be at least six inches high to give you the full benefit of being a raised bed. Anything higher is just icing you know, on the top. Uh, a raised bed has got the advantage that you're normally going to put the soil in there. You're not using the native soil, per se, that might be chock full of weeds and possible diseases. You might be using a mixture of soil, like some of the manures, like black cow, maybe some compost, a really good, fine topsoil that you mix together. Now you've got a fairly sterile soil, which not in a bad sense, but free from disease and weeds, at least for a few years, that you can begin to grow in. You'll have the ultimate advantage as well of now, since it's really good soil, it's going to drain properly. So you won't have tremendous problems with, you know, overwatering or wet feet if we, you know, that leads to rot. So raised beds are also good because once you've got them built, you don't need a lot of equipment. Your hands will probably do all the work you need them to do. You get a trowel and a That's hand right. shovel, and you yeah. should be good to go. That's right. Of course, I like being on a tractor personally, but at the end of the day, I do have raised beds that you know that we have at the Griffin campus, and, and they work out well. And, and tell our listeners about some of your wife's wide variety of raised beds and where she gets some of her inspiration for the creation of them. Right. Well, when you think of raised beds, uh, typically you're thinking of, you know— a 
wooden box. Treated wooden box. You know, it looks like an overgrown coffin or something like that you plant. But, uh, no, wifey, uh, she'll, she'll go off the deep end on, on finding things to plant in. Uh, we've grown potatoes in old wheelbarrows that sit on the farm. Um, she'll take up uh, an old planter that's got buckets hanging off the back of it. And you never throw anything out at the farm because she'll, she'll make something out of it. Repurpose. Uh, well, repurpose. We've grown in that. Um, old <laughs> bathtubs uh, can make wonderful raised beds. The key to any of those little uh, props that you use to raise bed uh, to grow in is you got to have good drainage. So make sure it's not a solid basin. Uh, my dad grows. He doesn't have tremendous size yard. He's got a little bit of raised bed, but he grows his best tomato plants in, in five-gallon buckets, like a Home Depot Lowe's bucket. Uh, I always tell him drill some, you know, one-inch holes in the bottom and at the very bottom on the sides to let the water kind of get out. But uh, he grows tremendous tomato plants in those. So it doesn't take a lot of room when you're using raised beds. It just takes some imagination. And I think it's really a great way to get started. Or even if you're a veteran gardener, add a few raised beds. I think you're going to see some really good results. Is it safe to say that the instances of root rot would be somewhat higher in a raised bed if you don't take the precautions to plan ahead for drainage? If you certainly had like a solid container that had a bottom to it, uh, you know, like a a uh, you know a plastic container, whether it be extended long or almost like a you know five gallon bucket, yeah, absolutely root rot's going to be a big issue if you don't do it. On a standard raised bed that would be kind of built over the ground, you know, where you have no bottom to it, uh, normally going to be you know, the advantage will be you'll never have root rot. And that actually, to some extent, can be a little bit of a liability that you really have to watch the water on containers and raised beds because while they do drain well, um, that can be a downside if you're not watching them close enough. They can dry out quick. So, you know, you'll have to probably going to water um, at least twice as much on a raised bed or a container-grown plant simply because it's, that water is not going to last in that root zone for long. Well, getting back to maybe some more elderly people engaging in gardening, particularly through the use of raised beds, have you in your profession seen any studies, and I'm going to look this up this evening because I want to know now, uh, that correlate better health to outdoor activities such as gardening? I mean, I know that, you know, they always want you to get exercise, but have you seen any specific studies that correlate better health with gardening? Absolutely half. I, I know up in Virginia, in Virginia Tech, they did a lot of studies on this, uh, so you could kind of look that up. Um, our own Sherry Dorn, who runs our Master Gardener program, that has been one of her themes is looking at um, hort therapy and things like such. Just my own personal example, I know, and I can't think of the name of the hospital, but I've been up to Cobb County where one of our volunteers, or Master Gardeners we call it, um, was working at the hospital, and they would bring um, recovering patients out from stroke or whatever they may have had out to the garden, raise beds, they'd wheel them out, and it just seemed to enlighten their day, being able to be back out in the soil working on plants. Another place I'm thinking of I've been to is the um, Shepherd Spinal Institute. The, the, the Spinal Clinic, yeah. That's right. Um, they have raised beds there where the patients that sometimes can't even get out of a wheelchair, they can wheel them underneath these raised beds that they're able to sit there and play in the soil. So, yeah, I think it's just a, a really good, you know, who knows what, I don't know what you would say, chemicals are released in the body or hormones or or, um, you know, things that maybe help you to heal once you're in a really good state. And that usually occurs. Uh, I mean, it occurs for me in the springtime. I, I'm just, like, tickled to death to be out there. Now, when it doesn't occur is when it's I'm picking okra in August and it's 98 degrees out. I think I'm getting reversed health benefits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can certainly see where that would come from. Um, what vegetables tend to do better with raised beds, or are there any? I mean, yeah. can can anything be grown in a in a container bed, or are there some that are just more proficient than others? I would say anything pretty much could be grown in a container bed, but some are definitely going to be better than others. Let's start with what I would, does not do so well. Um, you know, corn. Corn is something that you want right, to have several rows of. It's going to take a good bit to make a you know a decent harvest. So corn's not normally something you see very often in raised beds, although we grew it last year here at Griffin in raised beds just to try a variety and see how it did. But um, it's not the best thing. Um, certainly the spreading-type vegetables, and there are ways to get around it, but things like the winter squash, cucumbers, they're going to spread out, pumpkins. Lettuce seems to me like it would be problematic. It can be. It can be. Um, the way we got around growing cucumbers in raised beds, though, is I put a big fence 
kind of like a trellis in the center of the raised bed and let the cucumbers grow vertically, and they seem to do very well. Sweet potatoes really want to sprawl out, and I've grown them in raised beds before, but you have to kind of give the plant a haircut every few weeks to kind of keep all the arms of the sweet potatoes from extending over into the beds. Stuff like green beans, tomatoes, peppers, squash, all do very well in raised beds. So a lot of the traditional summer things you think about do well. Okra can do fairly well, although it's going to get tall again, so you have to kind of you know, make sure you space it accordingly. So but more of the bush-type things um, certainly should do fine in raised bed scenarios. Now, you do this professionally, but you would do it for nothing, which is the best kind of job to ever have. But getting back to the health side of gardening, do you find, as I do, that many of my mundane day-to-day problems disappear when I'm in the garden? That the garden gets the focus? Absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, just going out the garden to clear your head, um, it's always worked for me. I mean, there's always something you can do that, that will occupy your mind. Oh, there's, there's never a day that you don't need to be <laughs> be in the garden. And, and in all honesty, once if you plant, a, you know, and even a, not a, it doesn't have to be a huge garden, but it's, you know, a, a decent-sized garden. Um, if you've got five different varieties of something, it, it's something requires attention. It's it's gonna it's gonna call your attention. And it's gonna want to be harvested, uh, and and I think that's one of the things folks that are just getting into it sometimes don't realize that there is, and and it's a work of love, but there's a lot of work to be done. Um, a lot of things like the okra and the squash and so forth have to be harvested at least every other day, if not every day, depending on you know what cycle they're in. So it does take a lot of visitation in the garden. It is a something you should really try to enjoy. Uh, it, and I was kind of alluding earlier that it gets a little bit uh, tough in the summertime when it's really hot and the garden is just pushing, pushing, pushing and thriving. But uh, it is really nice. I think one of the benefits I like at the end of summer is, hey, I've now got a freezer full of sweet corn. I've got green beans put up. My wife has taken the tomatoes that we grew all season long. We have fresh, you know, Mexican salsa. We've got our own spaghetti sauce. Having all that stuff stored up always is a good feeling to me. It's sort of a great way to go into the fall and the winter, knowing that, hey, we're going to have fresh produce stored up in our house that we labored for over the summer. So that's that's a big part of it for us. Well, February is traditionally, if I recall correctly, a decent time to start pruning in preparation for the spring. Did the did the storms change that aspect in any degree? And if not, or if so, you know, what should people be doing in terms of pruning right now? Right. Well, the storms may have basically um, caused a more, what's a good word, it probably caused a more um, need to get out there right away immediately and start pruning any damaged material. And that should always be pruned. The majority of the landscape, though, if it needs pruning, the majority of your landscape now is a great time to prune it's not too late no anywhere between january february and sometimes early march you're trying to catch the pruning just before it starts to flush in the springtime so the exceptions i know we mentioned this before if you've got some spring blooming plants right now i'm driving around i've already seen uh forsythia yellow bells blooming what are those little white things that i see all over the side of the road Yeah. yeah yeah so so what you see this time of the year you're going to see a lot of white small trees blooming and and it's one or two things i always think they're dogwoods or bradford pears well they're baby most of them are baby bradford pears so yeah so they're so they're basically the little residual seeds that come off the bradford pears are eaten by birds and so forth they're deposited everywhere and they're one of the first things to bloom also some of the pinkish or 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 uh, reddish blooming things are, are wild plums that you'll see growing in the woods right now. All those things are going to be the first to go. So if you enjoy that bloom and you want to prune them, I would let them, just like an azalea, let it bloom first and then you can prune it, which might be April or something like that when the bloom's done. But everything else pretty much that doesn't have a early conspicuous bloom, now would be a good time to prune it, including fruit plants really. Okay, They need pruning actually. But there are other things in your landscape that you don't just prune it because it's time to prune. Bob said it's time to prune, prune everything. Only prune something if it needs it, and you're basically trying to maintain the natural shape. I don't really like when landscapers, you know, take an electric hedge trimmers or gas-powered and just make meatballs out of a lot of these plants. You know, they just completely cut them back almost like topiary designs. You know, that, of course, topiary has got its own place in Disney World or whatever, but most landscapes around here, you'd be far better off trying to keep things maintained in a very natural shape. The plant would be healthier and, in my opinion, would look better. 
as as one of the former city commissioners here in Griffin, Dick Morrow calls it crepe murder. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now we we discussed how there's really no such thing as a, a pre-emergent insecticide. What about for herbicides? What about in our battle for weeds? Can we get a jump start now? That's right. Yeah, so certainly when it comes to weed killers, and we call them herbicides, we've got pre- and post-emergence. And then there's a couple other words in there we won't throw out into the audience to confuse them. But at the end of the day, a pre-emergent herbicide is being put out prior to the seed, the weed seeds germination. It's not the plant you're trying to kind of protect. It's the weed seed. So... Where are we right now? We're in uh, February. So this will be a good time right now between now and about mid-March to put out a pre-emergent herbicide, say, on your lawn, your home lawn. Do you prefer the spray out of the hose? Do you prefer the granulars, or does it make a difference? It, the chemical's the same as long as it's applied properly. In my opinion, for most people, it's easier to kind of regulate how much they're putting out with the granulars. It's just much visible, more visible. With sprays, I see it on fertilizer. I see it on herbicides. People tend to overdo it or underdo it. They don't ever get it right. So I would suggest when you can go with the granular. Um, make In, in general, pre-emergence are fairly um, forgiving. You can use the same pre-emergent pretty much on most all your turf grasses and on a lot of ornamental beds as well. It uses the same product. Um, when it comes to post-emergent, that means weeds are already out there. They're growing. Now I need to kill them. They're out there. Now you're going to go with post-emergent. Then you want to be very specific to get the right herbicide, the right chemical, for the type of grass you have, for the type of vegetable you're trying to protect, for the type of ornamental, because now it's going to be very specific that if you get the wrong one, you could hurt the plant you're trying to save. How far away are we from the emergence of pollinators? Uh, in, in Being a, the middle of February right. or getting close to the tail end, would you say a month, six are you, weeks? Are you talking about the pollinator flowers or the insects? No, the insects. Yeah, so I, I would say we're probably about a, you know, the first thing I always see to answer this question, which I don't like to see, uh, will be the carpenter bees. Right, and that's, and believe, the, that's the one we don't want. Yeah, and he'll start flying around as soon as it gets warm enough. And I, I got say, one now. Okay, I'll say within two weeks or three weeks from now, you're going to start seeing them. And believe it or not, as much as I hate those things because they bore holes into the barn, this and that, um, they are pollinators. They actually pollinate a lot of your vegetables. Um, so we got to give them a little credit on pollination. He's we, attacking the screen door on my back deck. <laughs> we, and I don't know if I told the story, but one time, and we, when we built the new house that we have now, we covered the entire thing with hardy plank, which, if you're not familiar, is made out of cement. And those the, bum, the carpenter bees will fly around looking at it, trying to figure out where to penetrate it, and they can't. Our old house we used to live in was cedar. Uh, and I felt almost embarrassed when I sold that house because it had so many holes I had filled up. It was like Swiss cheese when I sold it, and those bees loved it. They will, and then I I had read, and I even I think gave the recommendation. Well, if you fre if you stain it, fresh stain won't bother them. I can remember to this day being on the ladder, painting a board with fresh stain, and looking right to the next to me where I just painted a carpenter bee had landed on the fresh wet paint and was drilling a hole in there. And I said that was total. Falsehood. Not yeah, yeah. Not good. Not, not good. good. That's right. So, all right. Before we run out of time, are there any final thoughts that our gardeners might need to know? We've got about three minutes left in the program. Anything that the people will need to know, or what they need to prepare for to get ready for planting season? Yeah, that's right. So, um, I think right now, actually, at the office, we're getting our seed coming in. So, if you haven't done it yet, you're going to plant vegetables. Go ahead and get your seed ordered. I know the last year or two, particularly during COVID, there was a shortage of a lot of things. Hopefully, not as big a problem this year. But go ahead and order your vegetable seed. We've got a lot of good publications at UGA Extension Publications on everything vegetables you ever dreamed about. General vegetable gardening and all the different varieties. You could look those up specifically in the search engine. Certainly, get your soil sampled if you haven't done it in the last few years. Never going to hurt if you add some good organic matter to your garden, whether you've ever done it before or not. Add some more. It's going to pay big dividends. And then, you know, look at the uh, your lawn. Uh, the pre-emergence right now, you want to get those out before that crabgrass and some of those other little nasty things ever germinate. Other than that, I'd say uh, get outside and enjoy, you know, some of the good outdoors. I think it'll, it'll provide good health benefit to you. Bob Westerfield, a horticulture specialist on the University of Georgia Griffin campus through Extension, the statewide leader, got a homework assignment for you. And it's not something that's got to be immediate, just when you get a, a minute here or there. 
one I want to spend one episode with you and our listeners discussing the wives' tales, either true or false, that are associated with gardening. Oh, I think it would be, be a, a great idea to dispel some myths or to encourage people to do things that they think might not be true. Well, if our listeners are listening in, I promise to make that our next show in a couple of three or four weeks. We'll do that. And, and we'll Bob, you have just genu- uh, graciously decided to donate your time to us. Uh, hopefully the third Thursday of each month so our, our listeners can get your gardening tips. And I know that this proves to be one of our most listened to programs on the entire station when we talk gardening. So we're glad to have you aboard and we appreciate your time this morning. And listeners, we thank you as well. And we hope that you'll join us at this same time next week for the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. <laughs> <laughs>